Walking past Brooklyn's lavish rooftop bars or the Barclays Center, it's hard to imagine Brooklyn's more humble beginnings in the early 20th century. Some of the names of the leaders that worked to make Brooklyn what it is today have been lost to history. Take Betram L. Baker. He was the first black person elected to public office in Brooklyn. In 1948, Baker was tapped to represent Bedford-Stuyvesant in the New York State Legislature. Baker broke racial stereotypes surrounding the Democratic Party at the time, pushed for equality in housing, and even widened opportunities for black athletes to play professional tennis. His grandson, Ron Howell, tells Mr. Baker's story in the biography, Boss of Black Brooklyn, The Life and Times of Betram L. Baker. I'm Caroline Rotante, in for George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. Ron Howell joins me now in the studio. Mr. Baker was your grandfather and the first black public official in Brooklyn. If you could describe your grandfather in one word, what would it be and why? It would be bossy, because <laughs> I think when he was a child, he just knew that he wanted to tell people what to, to do. He wanted to point a finger and say, go over there or sit down, listen to me, <laughs> be quiet because I'm talking. And I just always had the impression he was that way. I guess I sometimes think uh, in the womb of his mother he was that way. <laughs> what do you think clicked in your life that you decided you wanted this to be your, you wanted to write about your grandfather? I think it was just in there as kind of a, a seed for so long. And, you know, as a journalist, I was just writing so thousands and thousands of, of articles about so many uh, different uh, things and uh, traveling the world. And, you know, I loved reporting in Haiti and Latin America and went to live in Mexico for uh, a while and uh, and loved uh, languages, uh, Spanish and and uh, and French. But... I eventually came to realize that it was all an attempt to learn more about where I was from, Brooklyn. But I, I, I came to, you know, decide that, hey, I know how all this began, and I was there, and if I don't do it, who is going to do it? You described that there were masses of immigrants leaving the West Indian Islands at the time that your grandfather was. Was it for those better, larger opportunities like your grandfather was looking for, the island of Nevis didn't offer those opportunities at that time in history? That's absolutely um, true. You know, the, that was the big age of immigration in the United States because uh, folks were coming from, uh, well, from Ireland, but at that point more so from Italy and, and, and Eastern uh, Europe. And, uh, and they were coming from the West Indies too, although it was a small cohort and ignored by um, historians and sociologists of that period, I think, because their numbers were relatively small. What was going on in the West Indies, though, in the British West Indies, was that there had been slavery in the West Indies. But because of slavery, sugar crops were so meaningful. Uh, I guess in the southern United States, you think of cotton and in um, the British Caribbean, it was sugar. Not only uh, in terms of the economy did businesses have to uh, deal with paying now people to do labor as opposed to having it for free, but there was a fall off in the demand for uh, sugar. The market uh, pretty much uh, collapsed. And uh, in England, they found a way to use beets to um, produce what was essentially the same as, as sugar for sale across the uh, hemisphere. Things got uh, so bad that in uh, uh, 1897, many, many on the island of Nevis and other islands too, especially on the island of, 
of Nevis started to leave. And that happened with my ancestors as well, the Bakers. They left, and they went first to Trinidad. And, uh, and Bertram Baker's father left in 1904 to come to Brooklyn, and he left his son there, Bertram, in uh, Nevis with his grandmother. Why did they immigrate to Brooklyn? What was so special about Brooklyn at the time? Well, Brooklyn at that time, and I guess it had a lot to do with the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, which was uh, 1883. A lot of the, um, you know, working class folks who were in Manhattan, especially lower Manhattan, say the Lower East Side, were starting to look to Brooklyn and say, hey, this is a place where, you know, they are starting to put up some homes and the air is a little better and it's interesting and they put up this bridge. So a lot of the Italians who were living on the Lower East Side and the Jews as well, they started moving into Brooklyn. And that, that started something is, is, is what it was. So his ancestors, he had uh, not just his father, but his father came because he had uncles here, aunts and uncles who would come in, uh, after uh, 1897. And they settled in, in, in downtown Brooklyn. And, and they had very, very interesting um, lives. Uh, they started a church. Bertram Baker's uncle started uh, Ebenezer Wesleyan Methodist Church right on Myrtle Avenue, uh, downtown Brooklyn. And they invited their brother, uh, Reverend Alfred B.B. Benjamin Blanchflower Baker, to come and be the first uh, pastor there in, in 1904. And that got things started for Bertram Baker. What was the race situation like in 1915 when your grandfather was coming and hoping to make his mark on Brooklyn like his family was? Let's see how uh, 1915 stood out. Woodrow Wilson was the president. Um, In 1915, that very year, Woodrow Wilson invited to the White House some friends and some uh, Americans he thought were very significant uh, politically and and socially uh, to come and watch a, uh, a movie. And it was a movie about the forming of the Ku Klux Klan. And the really significant thing about it was that it was praising of the Ku Klux Klan. And and Wilson received uh, later, with the passing of time, a lot of criticism for it. But the mere fact that he felt comfortable enough to associate himself with the Klan, and he had roots in the um, uh, South, by the way, even though he was, uh, sometimes you look him up, he's called a progressive. Uh, Progressive, the very word, meant something very different in that time. So the Klan was starting to come into being. Uh, There were a lot of whites in the American South. The Civil War was over, but there were a lot of whites who were very, very resentful. And they started to essentially make the case and uh, 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 point effectively a finger at blacks there and say, listen, you may not be slaves anymore, but you're going to do what we tell you to do. And if we want to put you in jail, we're going to put you in jail. So across the country at that time, yeah, it was difficult. And he came in that moment, and he could see it right away. How did your grandfather help change negative racial stereotypes that were surrounding the Democratic Party at that time and encourage black involvement in the party? One of the things that he had going for him, and I I think it was true of uh, a number of uh, West Indians who became involved in politics at that point, and there were some in Harlem uh, as well. Raymond Jones is, is one name that sticks out. It was that they, as opposed to uh, most black Americans with roots in the South, who had this strong connection to the Republican Party because they saw it as the party of Abraham Lincoln, who is is seen as the president who freed the slaves. So many black Americans, I would say, you know, more than 95 percent embraced the Republican Party. And it was because of that, because they they saw it as the uh, party that opposed slavery. 
the West Indians who were coming up uh, thought realized that they were black and knew that they had to struggle in life, but they didn't have that same feeling in the stomach about slavery that black Americans did, especially with the roots in the South. So they were more likely to look to politicians who were Democrats and say, hey, I'm interested in um, helping people get elected to office, maybe getting elected to office uh, myself, and I want to do what I can to uh, walk into that door, sit in on the meetings, and and be a player and help folks get jobs because so often then it was um, uh, politics that got you jobs uh, called patronage, (laughs) of course. Your grandfather was able to befriend the Irish and Italian immigrants at the time that were running. Who would move up that political ladder in Brooklyn? How did he do that? Did he seek to develop relationships based on religious similarities? I believe that it had a lot to do with religion. It had a lot to do with his um, personality, the personality that he had kind of constructed almost knowingly when he was in Nevis. Um, I say in the book, and I feel it's true, that his church, the Episcopal Church here, which uh, Nevis was referred to as the Anglican Church, an Anglican referring to, you know, England, and uh, there are some to this day who refer to it as the Catholic Church of England. Because uh, in in its uh, history, it was Catholic, but they broke off and became a national denomination of the uh, Catholic Church. But in so many ways, the rituals are the same, the mass. And I think it had a lot to do with the relative ease with which he connected uh, with them. I would fast forward, if I could, uh, from the 1920s to my own uh, childhood. And uh, I went to uh, a Catholic school in... uh, Brooklyn, Our Lady of Victory, that uh, by then was had been Irish in the 1930s and 40s, but uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, as the neighborhood came to be called, uh, uh, became increasingly black through the 1950s and uh, was largely black when I uh, finished there in 1962. Then the question uh, came, where was I going to go to high school? I had a buddy who, uh, his name was John Stevenson, who was two years ahead of me, and I uh, went to Brooklyn Prep. As it turned out, I did not get into Brooklyn Prep. I don't know why, whether it was um, results of the test or they thought they had enough uh, guys from, and it wasn't all boys' school, all guys, from Our Lady of Victory. But my grandfather said, Brooklyn Prep, it's a good school. I like it. And it was largely Irish. I didn't, uh, in my mind at the time, say, oh, that's what made him connect with it. But I think it had a lot to do with it because uh turned out, and I learned this fairly recently, for instance, the um, the guy who was considered the the... the Democratic boss of, of Brooklyn. Uh, his name was McCooey in uh, the early 1900s, 19-teens and 1920s. was a graduate of Brooklyn Prep. It was built in uh, 1908, and so many of the uh, politicians went through there. To this day, uh, we have uh, their members of Congress who went through. Peter King, for instance, who's one of the biggest names in, in Congress. So your grandfather had influence in where you were going to study and start your education? He said, don't worry about it. And he went to talk with uh, the headmaster at Brooklyn Prep and said, you're in. So, you know, get ready to go to Brooklyn Prep. And um, and I think it had a lot to do with their having so many um, politicians uh, there. And the politicians sent their sons to, to Brooklyn Prep. To circle back to your grandfather's view on your development, when you were starting to have your career ambitions and you said you wanted to be a journalist, your grandfather wasn't too happy about that. No, I, I, I 
think he wanted me to be a, a lawyer. Uh, it was clear I had no interest in being a doctor or scientist or artist. I don't think he would have liked artist. I, uh, he saw that as a, a waste of time. He all but came out and said it. But, um, I mean, law was what he really expected. His closest friends, the ones who were like sons to him, were, were judges. Uh, obviously, he'd gone to law school. But I decided that I, I just couldn't do it. Um, he finally made his peace with that. I, I, I think he was also glad that I did not become a gun-toting revolutionary because um, he had that fear, and it was uh, on uh, some uh, ground that had justification to it, I think, given what I was doing in, in college. Uh, and he was even upset that I refused to wear a, you know, a cap and I gown. found that fascinating, mm-hmm. though, because... He was encouraging such political activism from the young people in Bed-Stuy at the time, but you were in college and showing your political activist voice, and that was almost frustrating to him, and that's what caused a lot of tension in your relationship, something that he was passionate in promoting for other people. Yes, yes, that was very true. And it was all about a, a balance uh, for him, and I came to understand that, that um, which is why I had a chapter called The Master of Compromise, because uh, that's what he was. He was a, a compromiser. In many ways, like there was a, a black historical figure, Booker T. Washington, who um, blacks in the 1960s, especially activists, uh, blacks who were on the left a- against the war, maybe supportive even of the uh, black uh, Panthers. Um, when they heard the name Booker T. Washington, the uh, phrase that uh, came out of their mouths was Uncle Tom. In other words, they thought of him as a, a guy who on this plantation was saying, oh, yes, master, I'll do anything you, you want. And Booker T. Washington, in the years after his death, I think, especially after the 1960s, uh, uh, drew that reaction from lots of um, lots of blacks. But the truth of the matter is, is that in the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s, Booker T. Washington, no, was seen as someone who accomplished a lot. But he just also believed that you should be making friends and have connections, uh, especially where you live. And he gave a, a speech that was known as uh, that led to his being called the the great compromiser. And it was cast down your buckets where you are. If you're stuck on a ship in the water, you cast down your buckets where you are, and try to maybe get fish from there or, or whatever. But you work in the uh, environment that you're in, and that's what he did. Uh, he was a, a compromiser. He could you know say, okay, I'll cut a deal with you. And on the other hand, he could you know yell in your face and point and his finger at you. And, you know, I think he scared a lot of people, including judges. And I was told that. I was told that, that he had to pull, be pulled back once. He jumped over a, a table uh, after a judge who um, argue, was arguing with him at a point. And there were people there who pulled uh, my grandfather back. And he was that way. He was that way. He balanced those two personas uh, within him. You say frequently that a lot of people were scared of him. Did you feel that way growing up? Is that how your relationship started, really kind of being fearful but respectful? Fearful, uh, yes, uh, that was true uh, also. What comes to mind is uh, a student at Our Lady of Victory came over the house. A lot of uh, guys would come and we'd play stickball outside or you know, just play catch in the backyard. I was in the uh, Little League. And while we were down there, my grandfather just needed help. He was upstairs on the second floor in his office. And it was always, Ronald, come up here. Everyone else called me Ronnie. <laughs> he was the only one who would say Ronald. And Ronald, to me, always, you know, it would just, I would, it would fear, you know, when I heard uh, Ronald. And he wanted us to do work in his office with envelopes and 
And my friend, he felt he had to do it because, uh, you know, I don't know, you just sort of react that way with him. And then as my friend was leaving, he said, your grandfather is mean. (laughs) And uh, I didn't respond, I guess, because I agreed. Fast forward years later then to when he finds that rifle in your closet and kicks you out of the brownstone. How did you still have such gratitude toward him and respect that decision? What it was, you know, there was something that uh, changed my life in many ways. Well, even before his death, I just came to respect what he did for me as a a grandfather. Um, I always thought of him as my, you know, tough, demanding father. But the fact is my father wasn't there. What had happened was um, I was living in the Fort Greene projects with my mother and father, and this was uh, after World War II. My father had been in the Marines. And my father was um, in the beginning of, you know, a heavy addiction to alcohol, and he wasn't around a lot. And then, together with that, my mother um, was hit uh, in the polio uh, epidemic and was not able to walk. And I remember the day it it happened, and um, she struggled for years, but... What happened uh, was that my grandparents took us in. And that was momentous because who knows what would have happened if we had been there on our own uh, homeless. And um, and plus the Fort Greene projects in the 1960s became a rough, rough place uh, with uh, gang warfare and, and drugs. But they took me in and I was not raised knowing that life. And I guess uh, over time... Uh, it just became so clear to me that uh, the outcomes uh, for me uh, in my early years could have been so, so different if it weren't for my grandfather. Unfortunately, I uh, began to have a sense of that before his death. Your grandfather may have been reflecting on his own life and a lot of maybe your choices as well. When he heard that you wanted to be a journalist, he might have thought back to those, was it the New York Age, where he was writing his articles that spurred a lot of controversy if he was doing that while wanting to be a successful politician causing that much salacious news around his name wouldn't have been good. Yes, I, I, I do uh, feel that's uh, true now. I did. I, I, I was uh, really uh, almost thunderstruck when I learned about my grandfather's time in the 1930s, writing for the New York Age. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, uh, it seems so clear to me that he hated journalists, you know, and the things he would say about them being so dishonest and, you know, and they were unfair to politicians and... Um, and here he was writing these articles for the New York Age. And not only that, but he was at the time in a, a group that was called the Prince Hall Masons. And it was the the black Masons. They were essentially uh, Masonic Lodges, a group of Masonic Lodges in New York. And uh, he wrote a column that was uh, revealed something about the Grand Lodge of the Prince Hall Masons that the Grand Master was unhappy about, and the Grand Master sent him a note saying that in the future he was to submit articles to him for approval before they were published. And um, he wrote an article saying that he was not going to do that. It was a violation of, of his rights, and uh, if he saw something was wrong, <laughs> he was going to write it. And it, it was, for me, as- astounding because it was almost like he was declaring himself to be a First Amendment <laughs> radical. But as you were saying, the results for him were not good. He wound up being expelled from the Masons for 99 years. For fighting uh, to share the truth, essentially, but the truth that was hard for other people to hear. And he never regretted doing it because he would often brag about having been expelled for 99 years for being truthful, for being true to himself and uh, his 
his beliefs. Why do you think tennis was his sport to make such racial equality? Why was he fighting for such racial equality in tennis specifically? I, I think he saw it then, as was the case in later decades of the century, of tennis as kind of a genteel sport. But he also noted that there were blacks around the country who were playing it. But there were ten- black tennis players in New York City, in Harlem, and uh, in Queens also, small community in Queens, and in Brooklyn. And they uh, were even having meetings in the early 1920s. And in fact, in 1916, they had formed this group called the American Tennis Association. And in the early 1920s, he became active and started going to the uh, the Brooklyn uh, meetings. Yes, so he uh, chose that as a way to make social contacts. And he was very successful with it. He also pushed for some of the first legislation requiring equality when it comes to housing and rental. Why? And today, what do you think? Would that still be something he'd be pushing for? I'm not sure, given the uh, realities we face socially and economically uh, now. But back then, I describe it as a time of of hope, the 1950s. And uh, it occurred to me recently as I was chatting with someone that uh, when he was pushing for that bill that was called the Metcalf-Baker Bill in 1956, that uh, he obviously was... uh, pushed uh, in his mind by the 1954 Brown uh, v. Board of Ed uh, decision that was said to have uh, outlawed um, segregation in schools. And in fact, it did on paper, but it did not change uh, things the way uh, many hoped that it would. And I I guess that would be said, too, of his uh, law that was um, an important law and and historic, too, that he... uh, authored with his uh, sponsor, co-sponsor in the Senate, uh, George Metcalf, that was called the Metcalf-Baker uh, Law. I remember him at home saying the Baker-Metcalf Law, <laughs> but in fact it was, uh, the first name was the Senator George uh, Metcalf, and his name was on it. And they um, pushed it, and it was signed uh, into um, a law by uh, Averill Harriman, who was the um, governor at the time. And it's interesting that the, um, the Senate sponsor was a Republican, uh, yeah, I don't think you would see that kind of uh, cooperating uh, today. After making such legislative progress, you say around the 60s he started to clash with the new wave of politicians. Do you think that was along party lines or was it just his old fashioned approaches maybe that were starting to phase out? I think it was a combination of, of things. I, I think there were a lot of um, Democrats who had come up in the early uh, 20th century who uh, had a hard time in the 60s because there had developed, you know, what was called the reform movement to sort of change things and to make the whole process more transparent because the party was had so long been thought of as a party of uh, bosses. You know, you were the boss of your district and you were the boss of uh, your borough. And everything that was done was done in, in secret. And there um, emerged at at that point in the 1960s a group that said, uh, we are Democrats, but we want to uh, change the way that we um, do things. And they uh, began to see some of the uh, old-timers, and I guess he was turning into an old-timer uh, by then, the 1960s, as um, artifacts, as uh, things of the past that they wanted to declare themselves to be in, in opposition to. So he was facing that. But he was also facing the emergence of... Um, 
a radical group of blacks with roots in the United States, in other words, uh, not uh, from the uh, islands. And and there was a bit of uh, resentment. I I, I think that they felt that this is our country, you know, and you came uh, here and you should just, you know, sort of step off to the side for a while and just be thankful that you have these opportunities. But this is our place. And and that happened. Uh, There was... um, sort of the the first generation of a new group of, you know, perhaps they might have called themselves radical Democrats at the time who started coming into to power in um, the mid and late 1960s, and he found him, himself in opposition. Do you think that's them. why he ultimately left politics? Yes, it was that, and it was um, people just sort of uh, fighting and scheming is a word I use sometimes to uh, take over, because there was a point at which he was... Uh, his club was the club, black club. In New York. But things were changing so much, and the numbers of blacks coming in uh, through the Great Migration, uh, you, you know, just multiplied. When his family arrived here at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, Brooklyn was 1% black, and it was changing. So that by the end of the century, it was 34% black, almost 900,000 blacks by the end of the century. And those changes were starting to uh, be seen in the 19. Uh, 60s. And um, I think he saw that his uh, time as the uh, proper dignified spokesman for uh, blacks who wanted to become uh, judges and um, be seen as the um, as a kind of uh, elite, you know, that era uh, of local history was coming to an end at that point. If your grandfather was to walk through Brooklyn today, what do you think he would think? I, when I have that dream, I think and hope that it would be him and my grandmother. And, um, you know, she suffered a lot in the relationship, but she, you know, stayed with him and stayed with me, you know, and I stayed with her through her. And she survived him by, uh, you know, 15 years. Um, And I just, uh, and she was born in Brooklyn, by the way, 1901 on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And she was from Nevis. They were first cousins. First cousins. Her name was Baker. She was born Irene Baker and then married Bertram. <laughs> so she was Irene Baker. Baker. So when I think Brooklyn, perhaps I think more of her than him. And I would just love to see the look on their face if we could walk through Brooklyn now. I think they would be speechless for sometimes I think maybe a day. <laughs> Why? Well, because uh, by the 1980s, everybody was calling Bedford Stuyvesant a ghetto. Um, and he, who was the boss of black Brooklyn, as I said, I, I think the new generation of politicians, they sort of ignored him and he was just there in his house, uh, collecting, uh, you know, documents and, and reading, uh, as much as he could. But in so many ways he was uh, alone. He was held up once in front of his house. He, some guy, uh, ran to, I said, I seen you, I seen you. And I know you got money. Give me that money right now. He gave him the money, went inside and, uh. You know, I, I was, uh, you know, traveling a lot in, in those days, and he just dealt with it. I mean, uh, and their house was r- burglarized, too, while my grandmother and he were in the house. But that's the way it was in the in the 1980s, and people were starting to leave, you know, and they considered leaving, too, and selling their brownstone. But no, they uh, stayed, and he died in the in the house. And in, some way, in many ways, it's safer. There are cafes there, you know, now that— uh, 
coffee, uh, $4. And, you know, and there's still lots of folks there who came up in the neighborhood and struggling, maybe in their 60s even, and they wouldn't spend more than a dollar for a cup of coffee at a bodega. But that's getting increasingly uh, difficult. And uh, you look at the census numbers and, uh, you know, just look at, at race and the number of blacks are going um, down. What do you think is the biggest lesson people can take away from your grandfather's story? That as fathers, you should try to have a, a pride in doing the right thing as a, as a father. It sounds kind of old-fashioned in 1950-ish, uh, like father knows best or something, but... Uh, I do feel that way, you know, um, in the absence of my own father. And um, I guess he was, for me, my grandfather, the greatest hero in that he he kept that house and, um, you know, a roof over my head. I mean, just to put it in the simplest, uh, most basic uh, way. And then he came to, uh, after in life, you know, show me that uh, he had love, too, for the way he held my grandson. So it's, um, you know, realizing what your ancestors mean to you and, 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 and trying to find a way to uh, respect it, you know, on the younger side. On the older side, um, to understand that you have some obligations to your um, children and to your grandchildren. Sometimes I think that's the basis of the, of the book. Thank you so I, much for taking the time to speak with me. Appreciated your questions and thank you. Boss of Black Brooklyn, The Life and Times of Betram L. Baker is out now from Fordham University Press, Empire State Editions. You can find more information at bossofblackbrooklyn.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My name is Caroline Rotante. Thank you so much for listening.